Morning Spec 1. Uh, if you're visiting, if you're first time here with us, I see some old faces, uh, new faces that I personally know. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name's Tim. If you don't know me, my name's, uh, I'm, I'm the pastor here at Spec 1, and we're really glad that you're here. Uh, no matter what brought you here, uh, we're glad that you're here with us. Now, we'll be going through a series of Philippians this morning. Uh, as you can see, we'll be going through chapter 2, verses 12 to 18 of Philippians. So if you can, uh, do have that open in front of you from the service order in your own Bibles, and we'll proceed. But before we do so, uh, let's ask God to be with us in this time. Let's pray. Help us, O merciful Father, to humbly receive from you, from your word, right now in this moment, that we may rightly hear from you and from you alone. We ask, O oh Lord, for your spirit to quiet our hearts and open our eyes to where we need your truth, your word from today's passage in our lives today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll begin by way of a recap for those of you who weren't here, all right? Previously, we looked at the end of chapter 1 of Philippians to chapter 2, verse 11, right before today. Now, Andrew showed us how Paul expected every member of the Philippian church to be living out a life worthy of the gospel. And that's in chapter 1, verse 27, right? That they had to be uh, living worthy of that. And by extension, not just Paul to the Philippians, but us, every one of us here in church today as well. Now, this gospel-worthy life was seen in two things. What was it? The first was standing firm in the face of suffering, Okay, that they were to be afflicted but stand firm, and also to be united with one another in humility. Now, humility is such a loaded word, maybe in today's context, uh, a lot of misunderstandings around it. How do we understand humility? And it's defined for us in the passage, which is counting others more significant than yourselves. Now, in Asian culture, humility is more often about uh, self-depreciation, right? Oh, I'm not good, you're good. Ah, oh, I don't, uh, you know, it would be as if uh, our, our, our music team said, oh, we don't, we don't do, we're not really good, lah, right? They, they, were, they were really good. So it's not about self-depreciation, but it's about being more concerned for the other. It's about loving the other, seeing the other as more important than yourself, right? So there's a, there's a slight but important difference there. It's about caring for the other. And the ultimate example for us is Jesus Right? And that's what we looked at in verses 5 to 11 of yesterday's passage. Jesus, the divine Son of God, he humbled himself, entering into our humanity. Right? Even though being God, what did he do? He entered our humanity as a slave, okay? taking the form of a servant. And not just taking the form of a servant, but being obedient to death, going to the cross. And we've talked about this. It's not about just humiliation or, or being humble in terms of that he was hung naked on the cross. But rather, that on the cross, he bore our curse. Right? And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us that for our sake, God made Jesus, made him, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we, all of us sinners, might become the righteousness of God. And therefore we read, God exalted him to the highest place, raised him from the dead, seated him at the throne of heaven, and therefore, at the name of Jesus, right, every tongue confess and uh, every knee will bow, right, and confess that he is Lord. Friends, this is the gospel. Gospel just means good news. This is the good news. Don't miss it. All of us, in our default state, when we came into this world, we were, we were cursed in our sin away from God. We're separated from God because we are sinful. And God, the good news is that God made a way out for us through Jesus. 
through Jesus' sinless life, through Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Those of us who believe in him, put our faith in Jesus, we are united with him. Our sins and our wrongdoings have been united with his sacrifice on the cross. He bore our punishment. And as God raised him to the highest place, we too who believe in him are raised with him, no longer under a curse, but now truly blessed in the presence of God. Now, today, if you're here among us and and you're not united with Christ, you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, please, it's our greatest wish that you'll consider. You'll consider believing in him, have faith in him, know him, right? And and we'll, we'll, we'll explore this. Now, in light of this great act of love, in, in response to this great demonstration of humility, we are to respond with today's passage. So Paul continues on uh, in verse 12 to give direct instructions to the Philippians and also to us on how to live out this life worthy of the gospel. Maybe some of you ended last week's sermon with some questions. How can we be worthy of Christ? Our righteous acts are filthy rags, right? Okay, we'll answer it in today's passage. And we'll do it in three parts uh, as we flow through the passage. So like I said, if you have the passage in front of you, we'll be walking through it verse by verse, word by word. Okay? In three main parts, that the gospel-worthy life is worked out, shined out, and poured out. So that'll be our flow of our talk this morning. Okay? So let's begin with verse 12. Therefore. So like I said, the word therefore putting here, whenever Paul talks about whatever he talks about next, has to be understood in light of Humility, in light of considering the other more significant, in light of the community of the Philippians, and of course for us, our community as well. Whatever we think of next is in light of that. And that's what we've seen in, sorry, did I press this? No, 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 no. There we go, okay? 27 of verse 1, chapter 1. What, what do we have here? So the therefore is linked about the life worthy of the gospel. It's about standing firm. It's about being in one mind. It's about being humble with one another. So in light of all that, Paul says, when I'm not around, sorry, as you obeyed when I was around with you. So likely when Paul was with them, when he was starting this church, uh, they were united. They were demonstrating this. They were living lives worthy of the gospel. Okay, And we'll unpack that a bit more also today. That when he was with them, they were standing firm in the face of persecution. We know that when he was with them, Paul was thrown in prison. And it didn't shake the Philippians' faith. Right? That they were doing all this while he was with them. So he says, now that I'm not with you. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He said, I'm not here with you. And even if I don't come back to you, okay, uh, work out in my absence. So the obey and the working out is linked together. Okay? So they are to work out their salvation. Now, let's break out this next word, salvation. Now, first of all, when we use the word salvation, salvation has to do with being saved, right? So, for us, what goes through our mind? The moment you put your trust in Jesus, the moment you believe in Jesus, you're saved. That's salvation, isn't it? And yes, uh, but here's the thing. If that was the case, if salvation is about the first instance of belief, it doesn't make sense for Paul then to tell, work out your salvation. Because remember, in chapter 1, Paul already says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. I'm confident that you, my prayer for you is to be filled with the fruit of righteousness in Christ. He is confident that the Philippians are saved. So what is Paul talking about here? We have to understand that. Paul's not talking about the first instance of salvation. He's referring to the total salvation experience from the first day to the day of Christ. 
the total experience of it from beginning to end. That for us, salvation is not just about being saved from death. Yes, we sinned, we were under God's wrath, we were headed for hell, and by God's grace, when we believe in Christ, we are saved. Yes, we're saved from hell. Amen. But it's not just about being saved from death, but being saved to live for Him. That the point after that moment we believe is not about, okay, then relax and do nothing, right? It's about living for Him. Every moment of our life, uh, to be living out that, that life worthy of the gospel. That this life that we live from the moment of our salvation is not something that happens passively. It's not that it happens instantly. It's something that happens gradually, step by step. It's something that happens intentionally. We, we need to plan, choose for it. Okay? We don't go to bed, sleep passively, and wake up. I'm more Christ-like. This morning, I don't need coffee because I feel the Spirit in me. No, okay? It doesn't happen that way. Okay? So Paul uses the word, work out our salvation. Okay? Work out the salvation. It needs labor. He uses the word labor to describe it. Okay? To, to choose. Friends, you're in this hall this morning because you made a choice. None of you sleepwalked your way into this hall. Or none of you like drugged and then, you know, uh, put a hood on you and dragged you and, oh, I'm in church, right? No one kidnapped you here. You came here because you chose. You chose to make the time with God's saints a priority. You make time, uh, not something you do out of leisure or complete. I want to do this for God. I want to gather among His people. You chose. We choose to spend time with God, to know God through time in prayer and the Word. We choose friends, in our lives, to be serious about sin. When we see sin in our own lives, to be repenting, to be bringing it to the cross. We choose to be serious about sin, that we recognize that we can't deal with sin ourselves, so we choose godly community of which we can hold each other accountable to grow together. Choose. We choose to make God's people a priority in our life. We choose not to be a lone wolf, even though we could. In a church this size, even Smack One, it's not considered a mega church by any means, but you can hide in the crowd. You could choose to not let anyone know you, to be safe, sure. But to grow in Christ-likeness is to choose to be a part of God's people, be a part of His community, to make time, to make space, to choose to let people in, as scary as that may be. To choose. Or for some others, it may be even to choose to stand for your faith. To do the right thing that you know will honour Christ even though there's a price to pay in your work or in your relationships otherwise. To choose to make a stand. Friends, this doesn't happen passively or naturally. So Paul uses the word, work out. Now, Paul says that they are to work out their salvation in the context of their humility to one another, yes, with fear and trembling. Now, pause a bit. Remember the context of the letter. In, later on, uh, foreseeing in chapter 4, verse 2, that there's an argument, infighting in the church that Paul wants to address. Two uh, members of the church have a serious disagreement that's threatening the unity of the church. Hence, even here in chapter 2, Paul's telling them, be of one mind in Christ. Don't be about yourself. Consider the other. Okay? And work out your salvation do this humility with fear and trembling. Why? Because in the next verse, it is we work 
out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. As we work, as we labor, okay, God is working too. Both God's work and human work in the same action of our salvation. We are not to emphasize one over the other, okay? We cannot go, oh, uh, you, the, the pastor told me, labor, work it out. Okay, it all depends on me. I'm, I need to push myself. I need to motivate myself because if I don't, everything is gone. I'm doomed if I don't, right? And you, you think it all depends on you. It's all about you. And you forget that God is doing something in you too. Don't forget that. But of course, the other extreme would be saying that God's so powerful. He's working in my life, right? Means, okay lah. Right? I can just chill, lay back, have a my tie and just become more holy. Because God's doing it. Nothing can stop God, right? No. We cannot emphasize one over the other. God is working in you as you work out your salvation. How? Because we are working it out by the grace that He gives. Friends, it's not our strength that makes us more holy. It's His grace. It's His strength that we work out. Right? So, if that's the case, why fear and trembling? Alright? Okay? Because we are recognizing what God is doing in each other's lives. In, in, in your becoming more like Christ, in my becoming more like Christ, God is doing something that will end up for His good pleasure. And if I, in my interaction with you, am drawing away from God's work, if I'm getting in the way of that, I am doing something that's against God's good will and pleasure. That's a warning, first and foremost. But more importantly than that warning, why fear and trembling? Fear and trembling because we recognize of the awesome promise in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion to the day of Christ. That your work, your labor is guaranteed. That the, the result of it, the Christ-likeness of your faith is guaranteed, even as you're working it out, right? That you will never fail to end up being a result of God's good pleasure. So, this gospel-worthy life that they are to live in humility, that, that Paul commands the, the, the Philippians to work out, is a guaranteed certainty. Okay? He's not calling them to fail. He's calling them that they will succeed. And this leads us to our first principle. Okay? That the progressive labor of this is, has a guaranteed result as we work out okay, this gospel-worthy life. Now, what are the implications of this? Why fear and trembling if that's so awesome, right? Now, the implication for us is this. Um, I'm, I'm drawing heavily from um, a sermon from C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. It's available for free online, either audio or text as well. So C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There is no such thing as an ordinary person. Friends, in all your lifetime, in all the people that you've ever interacted with, you have never interacted with an ordinary person. You have never interacted with a mere mortal. You see, God's fate, God's plan for all human beings, our eternal fate, uh, you and I included, is either eternal damnation or eternal life. That's Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. It's either eternal punishment or eternal life. That's it. Two possibilities. So with that in mind, eternal punishment or eternal life, the, the, the most unimaginable person, the, the dullest, the most boring person, the most plain person you ever come across, think about it. Now, don't look at them if they're in the hall right now, okay? But you think about the most boring person, the most uninteresting person, no conversation, nothing, right? But this person, if they are in Christ, 
they will one day be a being of immense beauty and glory. That if you were to see them today, you'll be tempted to bow down and worship because they'll be glorious. But on the flip side, if they're not in Christ, if they're in their sin, this plain and unassuming person will one day be so corrupted and twisted by sin that there will be a horror beyond the worst nightmare. Friends, there are no ordinary people. They are either enduring horrors or everlasting splendors. And all day long, in our interactions, we are in some degree helping each other towards one or the other of these destinations. It is in that context that we work out our salvation together with fear and trembling because we recognize who are we interacting with, the eternal worth of the person we're interacting with. Okay? Now, I hope you hear me and you don't go like, okay, then I don't talk to anyone, very scary, right? No, it's the call to remind the, the great calling of which we are called to, to, to build with one another, okay? To, to consider each other more, um, more significant than ourselves. That we do this with fear and trembling and to do it all without grumbling or disputing. And that's what we have in our next verse. Okay? That we do all things. What's all? Working out your salvation. Living out this gospel-worthy life that, that is defined by being united in suffering, being humble, considering the other most significant. Do all of this without grumbling, without disputing. Why? Because when we grumble and when we dispute, it's usually because we have our own rights in mind. We are being entitled. What I am owed, my rights, is not given to me, hence I grumble. This, I, this person owes me an apology. This person offended me, right? <coughs> Excuse me. We're thinking about what we are owed rather than what will make the other person better. Hence why the humility that God give, tells us to do, Paul tells us to do, consider the other more significant goes against this grain. Okay? To, to, yeah, against grumbling and disputing. Furthermore, if you do that in the next verse, we will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. As we, as we consider others more significant, we'll be blameless and innocent. Now, how are we to understand this? Does that mean, Christian, if you're not considering other more uh, significant than yourself, you're not blameless, you're not innocent? Or rather, it's saying that, oh, Paul tells us to be morally perfect. No, not at all. Remember Paul's earlier prayer? He uses the same two words, right? That Paul Barker led us through earlier. If you missed this, you can go back to hear the recording as well. Paul prays to them that your love may abound more and more knowledge and discernment, that you may approve what's excellent, and so be pure and blameless. That they are to be pure and blameless. How? On that day, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Being filled with the fruit of Jesus Christ is being pure and blameless. Right? That the pureness and blamelessness is not yours, it's not ours, it's not our moral perfection. It is Christ that we're shining forth, that we're bearing forth. Okay? So to be blameless and innocent without blemish means two things. The first thing is that we are being true to our identity in Christ. Okay? That we are children of God. Just as Jesus himself is Son of God, being united in Him, we share in His Sonship. That's who we are. Friends, if we've believed in Christ, you are a Son of God. You are the Son of the Creator. That is our identity and we are learning how to live in a way that's worthy of that identity. That, that, that's who we are in Christ. That's the gospel-worthy life, Christ-worthy. 
It's not about us. It's not about your worthiness. It's not about your effort. It is about Christ. His righteousness, His blamelessness, His worthiness that we look at. And what happens when we have this is that there's a contrast to the rest of the world. There's a contrast to this world who doesn't have Christ. And that's why Paul reminds them, you are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, uh, how do we understand this? That this crooked and twisted generation is contrasted with the children of God. And we see another part of Scripture that we've just read in our Old Testament reading that this is played out in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. You see, in this context, Israel, God's people, the, the, the generation that came out of Egypt and refused to go in, they didn't believe in God. What happened? They were punished to die in the desert. They were disowned, right? They dealt corruptly. It means they were treacherous. They were faithless. Where God was faithful, they were not faithful. So God considered them no longer his children because they were blemished. They were tainted by sin. That they were crooked and twisted, literally perverted, distorted. That's who the children of Israel were. And that's how Paul describes the world without Christ, contrasting to the Philippians who are the true children of God. Okay? And that's, of course, describing us today. So they are to shine as lights, I mean, yeah, in the midst of this twisted generation. Now, Paul was describing the world or the generation of the Philippines day. But I think it also describes the world of our day as well, isn't it? That the world around us has twisted itself away from God. Where God's truth is straight, a firm pillar that goes straight, the world has been crooked and bent and will fall under its own weight. Where God has called the church to be humble, to consider others more significant than yourself, what does the world do? It tells you, look out for number one. Right? Look out for number one. How does this play out in marriages? Marriages go, if, if the marriage is not working, I'm not happy, divorce. Right? In work, you know, if work is hard, I'm not happy, I'm not being fulfilled, I'll quit. That's what the world will tell you. And, and employees or business owners that says, you know, I want more profit, I want more money. I'll just squeeze the downline, I'll squeeze my employees, I'll squeeze my customers so I can get more profit, more money. Friends, a world where everyone is just looking out for themselves, their own self-interest, is a ruthless dog-eat-dog world, where everyone is out to get you, you can trust no one, and this world will use you up and spit you out, and being in this world is tiring and weary. What's the remedy to it? In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, Jesus famously said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How would a, a world-weary soul walking in find rest? They find rest in Christ. And where is Christ most clearly seen? Friends, he's seen here. This is what this gathering is for, is to shine his light. Jesus, and that's why we go... Paul ends this way, shining as lights in the world. Friends, Jesus is the light of the world. It's His light that we are to shine. We are not to shine our own light. We are not to shine the light of smack or even St. Mary's. No, we are to shine Jesus' light. And how do we do so? By looking to Him. Remember, in context of what we've seen before, His example, the life worthy of the gospel is a life lived out 
emulating the humility of Christ. A life lived out, considering the other more significant than oneself, because that's what Christ did. He considered our salvation more significant than himself, hence he went to the cross. A life that is transformed by Christ's love, to desire to love the way he does. And friends, it's impossible to be transformed by something you don't know. Hence, the shining of this light, the living out of this life is done by holding fast to the word of life. So what's the word of life? There are a few things here, right? Jesus is the word. It's him that we shine. Uh, it, we shine forth the gospel. The, the word of life is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that I've explained just now. And we know about this. It's contained within his word, the Bible. God's word is the word of life as well. That all these three things are not three separate things, but they're to be understood together. What we do here right, in SMAC, we hold fast to the word. That God's word, God's truth informs every part of our service. That in your small groups, in your GGs, right, you hold fast to the word. You encourage each other with the word. That we seek to do that as a community, to encourage each other to God's truth. Now, as we do so, be very, very clear. We have to be very careful not to just do so informationally, right? Because knowledge puffs up. But rather, we have to do so relationally because love builds up. What do I mean? Our endeavors in the word, here in church or in your GGs or in TNT or other classes, whatever you do, your endeavors in the word need to be deepening your love for Christ. We need to be constantly deepening our love for Christ through his word. If not, we're not shining his light, friends. If we don't do so, we're actually shining our light, not his. Okay? So the next, this leads us to our next principle in that the gospel way of life is shined out. Our labor, what we work for, work out in the context of one another, this humility is, shines forth, is meant to shine forth in this dark generation where the world is ruthless, where the world is perverted, where the world says anything goes. God instead shows us what true love is. That his love for a fallen humanity is seen in how the Father loved the world and sent his only Son into the world. It's seen in the Son who loved the lost, willingly went going to the cross for our sakes. We're seen in the Spirit that loves us by making us aware of our need for him, aware of his love for us and drawing us near. Friends, God's love is not passive. God's love is not inactive. It's intentional. It does not wait for us to come to Him. He comes to us, meets us where we are to draw us in. His love is self-sacrificial. Now, as we talk about God's love that's self-sacrificial, that is so amazing, on some deep and subconscious level, the world yearns for it. That They don't realize it. They don't admit it, maybe. But they, when, we, when we look at the stories that, in general, the world celebrates, stories of great self-sacrifice, either in, in novels or in movies, right? We, we are moved by stories of love, of self-sacrifice. Why? Because our hearts have been designed to recognize and desire God's love for us. Again, friends, if, if you don't have Christ, if, if you, amongst us, you're weary from the world, may I invite you to taste and see that Christ is good that his love is good, that he truly loves you, and that Christ loves you like no one else in this world, that his love is unchanging, his love is unwavering, that his will for you is good because he is God and he can accomplish what he promises you 
No one can promise that. But Christ can. My prayer for you is that you will cease from your labor in this world that will not fulfill you, will not save you, and come and find rest in Christ. Friends, and there will come one day where they will promise that this day will come when everything will be made clear. What I've said about the, 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 the stories and books and movies that are so grand and noble that moves us will seem pale in comparison to what we will behold on that day when Christ comes. And that's the reality Paul is leading us to next. That as the Philippians shine as lights, as they hold fast to the word, Paul continues on to look on that day of Christ. The last day, the judgment day. That when everything is taken and considered, that on that day, Paul would not have run in vain or labored in vain. That the things that Paul was working out would not have been in vain. It will bear fruit. How? How did Paul view that in verse 17? Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, Paul viewed his labor, all the things he's ever done for the Philippian church as a drink offering. Now, what's a drink offering? Okay, if, if you don't know the context behind this, it's part of the Old Testament sacrifice system. It's usually a cup of wine that's poured out upon a larger offering. Sometimes it's a food offering to God. Sometimes it's a grain offering. Um, sometimes it's an animal sacrifice. There's a cup of wine that's poured out on it. The point here is that the drink offering is not the main offering. The main thing is the animal or the grain or whatever was being offered to God on the altar. The wine, the drink offering is just poured onto it. And together with the main offering, it rises to God as a fragrant sacrifice. That's what we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So bear in mind, Paul, the great apostle, the one who planted this church, who wrote uh, so many epistles in our New Testament, he viewed himself uh, not in the way of entitlement. Paul was not entitled. That on the day of Christ, it wasn't about Paul. It wasn't even about Paul's legacy. He didn't go like, Philippian church, I planted you. You better behave, you know? You know, my legacy on the line here. No, no. Paul was all about what God is doing in you. I'm poured out. It's okay. I rejoice for your sake. It's okay. And this pattern of, of Paul rejoicing, even the small part he's playing in what Christ is doing in the Philippian church is... Uh, also seen in how he viewed himself. And this same idea of a drink offering is also seen in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 7. That I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. That Paul's entirety of his ministry, the sum total of his whole life, was just a drink offering. Friends, do we have that same view? Paul viewed his whole life, not about him, about being poured out for Christ. And he's being poured out upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. So let's unpack that a bit. We no longer give offerings to God in a temple with an altar of fire. Right? No, no more barbecue. Why? Because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Amen? No more guilt because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. But when it comes to us, there is still a sacrificial offering we give. And Paul, somewhere else, would say in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. What do we give to God? We give to God ourselves, our lives. This gospel-worthy life is our offering to God. 
So let me ask a few questions, if I may. If our lives and our words and our actions are meant to be living sacrifices to God, all that we do, all that we say, all that we interact with one another, what are we offering to God? Does God come into the picture when we live our life from Monday to Saturday, not just on Sunday morning? Do we give God the best of our time, the best of our attention, the best of our energy, or do we just give God the loose change that's in, the end, in our pockets as we go home at the end of the day? You know, these loose change, these coins we put in a jar for some good cause, that we give God the leftovers. That's it. That we give our best everywhere else except God. And not just about what, what are we offering God, how do we view what we're offering to God? Even if we give God our best, how do we view it? Is it about us? Is it about our legacy? About what I did for Christ? My effort that I, as I give to Christ is going to earn me a bigger mansion with walk-in wardrobes in heaven. No. Or is it about Christ? That whatever we do for Him is for Him. That, and, and it's about what Christ is doing in the lives of my brother and my sister. How do we view our offering? Friends, if we do what Paul does and not labor for our own self-importance, but in humility, laboring for the other, considering the other more significant, what happens here is that we are freed up to rejoice. Rejoice to celebrate what God is doing in someone else. It doesn't weigh in upon your holiness. right? It doesn't make or break it by on your own effort and your own life. But you're freed up to celebrate what God is doing. When you see God work in someone else's life. You're freed up to celebrate. That's why Paul ends this with saying, rejoice. I rejoice and you should rejoice with me. So let's bring it to a close. What have we looked at so far? This gospel-worthy life that's, that's worked out, that we are to live out from the moment that we began to believe in Jesus is a guaranteed thing that God will work for His good pleasure to, to re- bring the result to His good pleasure. And that that as this is being done, it's meant to contrast this self-seeking world that the selflessness of Christ, as we seek to emulate His selflessness, is shining in contrast. And it's about being poured out. Our entire lives, the gospel-worthy life, it's not about us. It's about being poured out for the other. It's not easy. No one will say it's easy. Well, let me close with this analogy. So my kids, um, especially my younger one, uh, is at the phase where she's learning to read. Uh, how do you read English? Nowadays, they teach something called phonics. Not, not when I was growing up, not that I can remember, but phonics. Now, phonics is not fun. Apologies to the English teachers here in, in, in the congregation, right? Uh, I applaud you that you can make something like phonics seem engaging with games and, you know, wow. But, you know, phonics, you know, uh, uh, how, many, how many sounds does C make? Uh, a, R, E, U, right? B, K, T, right? It's not fun. So my, my children, my, my, my child struggles. She struggles. Oh, why? Why must I do this? When I'm trying to make her do spelling homework. Like, why? But we know, right? Those of us in this room, we know that this season of unpleasantness, no matter how long it takes her to learn phonics, okay, will lead to a lifelong skill of being able to read. Now, if, if like me, you love to read, you know that reading unlocks worlds. It deepens one's soul. It helps you to explore not just yourself, but lives of others. It does so much, doesn't it? 
okay, maybe I'm getting some blind faces. Maybe you don't like to read. Fine. Can you at least agree with me that reading is a life skill that's important? <laughs> right? That, that no matter how hard it was, it's worth it. No matter how hard it was to that five-year-old, learning to read is worth it. And you see where I'm going with this, right? Christians, our lives in this earth, no matter what duration it is, the labor that we've been called to in this moment for this life is tough. It's not easy to stand firm in one mind. It's not easy to die to yourself to consider the other more significant. It's not easy. But friends, it's worth it because this lifetime that we've been called to is a season of preparation for an eternity of glory that is guaranteed. What more could we ask for? So let us persevere. Let us be faithful. And let us always, always consider Christ on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Yes, Lord, the path is tough, that the enemy is wary, is active in this world. That is tough to stand firm. Help us, Lord, where we are weak. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your truth, your promises, so that we may stand. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, that you are working in us, that you don't leave us alone to face these challenges, that you are with us. Help us, Lord, for those of us here who are tired, who are weary, who have lost sight of why they are living in this life, to be reminded and be pointed back to Christ of his love for them and that we are called to just merely respond to your great love. Help us, O Lord, we pray, where we are forgetful. Help us, O Lord, we pray, where we've become selfish, that we may shine like lights for Christ and on that day be found blameless and pure because we're shining the righteousness of Christ. It's in his name that we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.